we literally had no air pack um and we were using our flash hoods that was our air pack and i remember gagging and choking on smoke coughing up it was still very thick and black and you would be crawling one second and the next second you'd be in open air like because you came out of a void and you couldn't see a foot in front of your face at the time What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. The views and the opinions are those of your host and your guest. Today, I got a brother by the name of Travis Howes on the line with us. He is a former Marine, former police officer, and former firefighter. He was a key player in the recovery of the Charleston Nine, uh, where he lost uh, nine of his very close friends. We talk about a book that he wrote called Create Your Own Light and his pathway through life and through PTSD and the recovery from that. It's a great, great conversation and great podcast. Give it a listen and I hope you uh, glean something from it and I hope you enjoy. So Travis, I, um, I'm super happy to have you on the podcast, man. And I wanted to talk about, um, I want to talk about your book, create your own light. And I want to talk about the journey that you've been on. And, um, because your, your story with Charleston fire and your, your brief career with PD. And now that you're a comedian, people would look at that and go, well, that is quite the arc. Right. And, um, but before, and, and as we dig into that, I want to talk about, you know, where this started for you and a little bit about where you grew up and, you know, how you, how you came up and how you came into this. Yeah, man, I'm an open book, brother. So let's whatever you need. I got I got all the answers to uh, my story anyway, <laughs> right. not not to anybody else's uh, story, but certainly mine. So where did you? So let's start with that. So where did you grow up? So I grew up in. Um, I'm from the South, obviously. If you can't hear uh, tell from my accent, uh, I grew up in uh, South Carolina in the southeastern part in a small town called Bluffton, and it's about you know, ten miles or so from the Georgia border. Uh, coastal community and it was very small at the time. Now it's, it's not like that anymore because the whole East coast is just completely developed and caught up to my little town. Mm. And, uh, you know, I spent the first 18 years of my life there and it was a town where we had one little restaurant called squat and gobble. We had a, a feed and seed store where you could buy chickens and, uh, get your groceries at the same time. Um, you know, in my book, I write about, they had a video, uh, rental place in there too, VHS. And you could also go in there buy your chickens and go rent rent videos and go behind the red curtain and rent pornos. So you can buy chickens and rent <laughs> porn under the same roof, man. Pretty cool town. <laughs> I, I don't know that that uh, too many people have that option. Certainly, I don't not. think so anymore with as PC as everything's gotten. That's back when life was good. <laughs> so what, uh, what, what's your favorite part about growing up in the South? Like, I, I know you've probably moved around the country a lot. You've traveled a little bit and when you, do you, are you settled back in the in the Carolinas now? Yeah, so I live about an hour and a half north now in a, in a small town called Charleston, South Carolina. Um, it's uh, I say small town because I believe in, you're in Phoenix, and in comparison, it's it's no Phoenix, but it's actually one of the larger cities in our state. Um, I stayed in the I stayed in the South. I really love it here. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not far from from family at all. You know, I have my own family here. And, uh, I like it because it, it's super wholesome. When it, when, when I grew up, everybody knew everybody. You know, everybody's yeah. polite. And I'm not saying it's not like that around the rest of the country, but where I grew up, man, everybody was super friendly. Um, and, and I always liked it. So when I got out of the Marine Corps in 2000, naturally, you know, not knowing what I wanted to do at 22 years old, I went back home. Yeah. So here I am. Yeah. 
That's cool, man. It's uh, I've been through Charleston. It's gorgeous, and uh, haven't spent a whole lot of time there. So yeah, it's it's super nice here, man. And I, and it's funny because I always bitch about the heat, and uh, uh, you know I always hear people from your area or Texas. They're like, oh, you need to come out to Texas or Arizona <laughs> and get some. And I'm like, dude, I've been, and your heat has nothing on our heat. You guys have hot, but we have hot and humid. Of the like dude, our 90, yes. Yeah, so our 90 degree day will match your 118 degree day oh. all day long because of our humidity. Yeah. We're like you walk outside and you literally better have six changes of clothes here. You're just sweating. Mm. And people are like, did that guy piss himself? Like, no, he's just hot. <laughs> just sweating it up. He's just sweating it out. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, yeah, I've been, I've been to places where it's humid and, uh, I, I will take the dry heat all day. You know, although it's a little I, miserable, I, it's a little miserable when it's 120 and you, you like, you just, it just burns. They're like, it's so freaking hot. But yeah, you, you know, guys, I mean, y'all definitely have some heat. I've, yeah. I've, when I was on comedy tours, man, I've been out to parts of Arizona and I'm just yeah. like, man, this is hot. But thank gosh did, that you guys don't have the humidity. Did you get out this way whenever, when you were in the Marine Corps uh, out to like uh, 29 Palms or anything like that to CACs or anything I, like that? I did. We went to CACs and uh, that was about it as far as the West Coast. My West Coast ventures went in the Marine Corps. Everything yeah. we did was <laughs> the glorious East Coast. Coast. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, let's no, talk no. about let's talk about your time in the Marine Corps. So I I went through. Uh, I'm a Hollywood Marine. I'm just going to say it. Um, and, oh, but you man. went through where Marines were Marines. So talk to me a little bit about your your journey to Paris Island. And, well, well, let me ask you this first of all. What prompted you to join the Marine Corps? Well, first of all, I'm glad you said that where Marines are Marines. <laughs> I, I was on a podcast last night on a law enforcement one, and a guy asked me, he's like, is there really a rivalry? I was like, no, there's no rivalry because all the West Coast guys know we're Marines. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, hey, it's been, I've been out long enough now that I'm willing to uh, subjugate my ego a little bit and let you guys have your space. <laughs> well, we appreciate that, man. So we, we certainly need that. Um, what, and your question was, I'm sorry. No, you, my question was, was what drove you to join the Marine Corps? Oh, so I grew up right across from Paris Island, man, like literally outside of the gates, um, about 10 miles down the road. Uh, and when we played Little League football, we would play back then. The Little League team was called um, the Paris Island Redskins, and all the drill instructors' sons played on those teams. Oh, okay. And so every Saturday, we'd go over there, and we're watching the crews get smoked, man. And this was in the 80s, the early 80s, too. Mm. And we're watching these uh, recruits get smoked, and for some reason, I just, I just loved it. I was like, man, I can't, I can't wait until I'm old enough to have a grown man yell in my face and <laughs> boss me around like that. I have no idea what was going on in my head, but um, nobody was ever in the Marine Corps. In my family, my, my family's all uh, Army and Air Force, mm. so I also knew I wanted that challenge. I was a, I was a very, very hard-headed young man. And I needed that in my life. So I was naturally, you yeah. know, Marine Corps was the only option for me. Yeah. Coming up from, uh, yeah, I felt like coming out of high school, I was like, yeah, I don't know what I want to do. And I'm like, well, that looks like an attractive option, right? It's a, it, it was a, I don't want to say the path, path for me, it was on the path of least resistance, but it seemed like it was, it was, it opened doors that would not otherwise be open to me. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think I have the money to go to college. I'm not that smart. I barely made it out of high school. And I'm like, well, this, this is a great opportunity. And, um, and yeah, sunk my well, back then, it. if you had a heartbeat, man, you, you, you could get into the Marine Corps, you know, <laughs> and that was what it was about. College, college, let's, I'll be honest, college was not even going to be an option to me. Yeah. Dude, I wouldn't have been able to make it to online college had it have been available back then. I was, I was ridiculous. Yeah. Like just 
checked out. Yeah. I did not want a higher education. I didn't like learning. I just wanted to chase girls and do raw shit. Yeah. So <laughs> Marine Corps is perfect for me. So you went in and what was your MOS? So I was uh, 0311 and I was an infantry guy. Yeah. Um, just, yep. Uh, so I went in in 96, got out in 2000 before all the big wars. So you were kind of right in that, that peacetime gap, right? Right between Desert Storm and and uh, and 9-11. Yep, that's was... right, man. So when I got out, um, some, of the, some of the guys that I was in with were being recalled, but not me because they were our boots, so our, our younger guys. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, they, I guess they... Some of them just got out a little bit after us. You know, a few of those guys got recalled. They never went anywhere. I don't believe. Yeah. Uh, we just kind of got called back to bases and everything. Yeah. How, how did How did you feel about that? When did yeah, I feel about well when recall? no when nine eleven happened and you're you, know, you hadn't been out that long. You kind of looking back, like did you feel like you missed an opportunity, like to deploy or kind of put it to work? Um. So I was actually when the yeah, I was pissed off because I was a fireman when when I saw that happen, and I knew that I wanted to be a part of the solution um, to that. You know, I just gotten out. I was an E four corporal. I just done four years in the infantry. I was, you know, still very very healthy and in shape, and you know, but I was a fireman. I was loving my new career. Yeah. And around two thousand and three, when the first invasion kicked off, I was actually I transitioned out of the fire department and became a police officer. Um, and I was a cop at the time, and I drove my police cruiser to the front door of the recruiter station. And I just walked in and said, hey, man, look, I've been out three years now. Um, I explained the situation that you know, I was a corporal in infantry, I was a squad leader. And I wanted to go back in infantry, and I wanted to be able to go to a deployable unit because this looked like it was going to be a really big deal. And you know yeah. what this recruiter says to me? I've never in my life heard of a recruiter try to talk somebody out of the Marine Corps. Right? Huh. He goes, man, by the time we get done processing you, this thing will probably be over and I wouldn't be able to guarantee you a, a rotating unit anyway. You could, you could easily just get stuck on uh, Pendleton or Lejeune for your entire four years. And that right there turned me off. I was yeah. like, you know what? I'm, I'm not signing up to go sit on base. Right. And so I went got back in my police car 15 years later, stuck in worse than that. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. But, right. There, but there's a reason for everything. Yeah. 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 It's, it's uh, I did feel, you know, I was on the job at that point as well. And I had a, uh, when nine 11 happened and it was, it was gut wrenching for a thousand reasons. Right. But I, I remember thinking, man, at that point I had been out for quite some time and I got out in 94. So not, not a whole lot of time, but for a little bit and looking back, um, you know, I had brand new kiddos and I was like, I need to go and do something. I got to go in the national guard. I got to, I got to sign up somewhere and put these skills that I acquired to use. And, um, so there was a bit of a letdown there cause I felt like I was missing an opportunity, right. To, to sharpen to up serve. those knife hands. Yeah, man. I felt, you know, like there's this, this, this skill set that you build up and then you don't actually get to deploy it. Cause I was in, I came in as desert storm, uh, kicked off. So I was in the middle of my training class, my MOS training class when the war happened and ended. And so we had orders in hand to join our battalion. I was in, uh, with first tank battalion, um, to go join my tank battalion and then they rescinded it and they're like nah go back to the barracks so we went to camp pendleton after training and uh waited for the, the unit to come home 
Damn, Damn, dude. It's almost like being a fireman and being sent to that outline station and never <laughs> seeing or smelling smoke. <laughs> right? It was horrible. Yeah. So, you know, but let's go train. Let's go train every day. Oh, you know, that kind of, yeah. That kind of sucks, sucks the wind out of your sails. Yeah. Well, I spent, you know, I spent the next, you know, whatever, four years just training. And, um, and that's why I brought up the, uh, the 29 Palms. So we were stationed at Camp Pendleton and then got moved. They, they moved the entire tank battalion. And this makes perfect sense, but they may, they moved the entire tank battalion to Twenty Nine Palms, and um, wow, there's yeah. nothing out there, man. No, and back then there was even less. You know, I think I think halfway through my pump there, they put in a McDonald's, and the line was like mm. down the block. Everyone's like, "Ooh, McDonald's! <laughs> this is going to be the greatest thing ever." You know, there's there, bars. It was confusing when we were out there. I think that's the Seventh Marines or something. I can't remember what some Marine regiments out there. But I was like, dude, we're only out here for 30 days. And I was like, I got to get out of here. And, and it was driving <laughs> us crazy. There's no hookers out there, dude. It was crazy. Right. It was. They won't be out there in the middle of the desert. It's miserable. <laughs> miserable. You know, young infantry guys are. So, right. no, it was uh, – I was glad to get out of that damn place. Hats off to the, to the Marines that served out there. Yeah. So where, so when you were in, uh, where did you spend your time? Did you get, uh, did you get so deployed was, at all? Yeah, yeah, we got deployed. I did some cool stuff, man. We, um, I was with 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines back then, and uh, we ended up doing two med floats, and both times we had some flare-ups going on in, in South, I want to say Southwest Asia, so we had to cross the Suez Canal, kind of go over there for some stuff. Um, nothing major, and then we came back. Um, and uh, we did some, some high-speed, low-drag training down in Aruba, and uh, that was about it, man, in 29 Palms Cacks, you know, and doing the stuff up uh, AP Hill, Virginia, just the standard run of the mill stuff. Yeah. But you know, the experiences that I got in there, just, I was looking at some pictures this morning, hanging out, you know, rappelling out of helicopters, flying underneath helicopters on spy rigging, yeah. um, hardware and just, just all the cool stuff you get to do. It, it's, it was certainly was fun, man. And it's looking back, it was the time of my life. Yeah. And well, you know, as well as anybody, when you're in there, all you want to do is hurry up and get out. Like, man, I just want to hurry up and get out. And it's like, wait a minute, we signed up to do this shit and we don't even want to be doing it. But right. I would give anything to be able to be condition, conditioned for that again. I'd, I'd pass out and die if I had to do something like that now. But yeah, if we could go back and do it, man, I'd do it all over again. Yeah. Is there, what's, what's one of the things that you say you took away from that? Like a, just a life lesson or a memory that you look back and go, this is the one valuable thing that came out of that that, that really sticks to you. You know – Overall, I think it's um, that Marine Corps mindset that is instilled in you within that short period of time. There's not a day that goes by that I'm not a Marine and I don't feel like a Marine still. Mm. The decisions I make are based around the um, the ethos of the Marine Corps. You know what I mean? Right. It's everything I learned, everything that was instilled in me, that can-do attitude that if, if you're fix it, if it's fucked up, that – I'm not going to stop until I, I finish this. It's do the right thing, not 90% of the time. Do it all the time. You know, and it's, I try to instill that in my children. And it's, um, it's just that Marine Corps way that's, that's ingrained in me. And I love it. And it's a prideful thing. And you have it. We all have it. Yeah. Um, I just, I would have to say that. Yeah. I love that. That's great. So you, you, uh, so you got out. What was your what was your plan at the end of four years? Did you have an agenda? Um, yeah, so actually, I went to um, I was I was thinking about law enforcement, and I went to this uh, thing they had on base where a bunch of um, police officers were there and doing like a, um, a job fair. Oh, okay. And I walked around, got a bunch of pamphlets and stuff, spoke with some recruiters and stuff, and all that. And I was like, well, you know, I'm 
of a tactical mindset. I'm coming out of the infantry. This would be a great deal for me. But when I went back home, I started going over all of that stuff. My dad told me, you know, one of my best friends that I grew up with was on the fire department, the local fire department. Now, I grew up around the fire department. I grew up in the fire department as a young man. Uh, when I was very, very young, I mean, I was hanging around the fire station, 12, 13 years old. And how'd you, how'd you fall to, into that? My school was right across the street from it. Oh, and okay. I found myself sneaking out of, um, or between classes and I'd miss the bell. I'd go over there and cut up with those guys and they were always having a good time. And, and I was learning pranks from them and stuff. And they pranked <laughs> me and I got to know them. And honestly, I fell in love with them as a family, you yeah. know, and it was, I loved that bond. So when I went into the Marine Corps, it was kind of a natural thing when I got back out. My buddy Derek was already working with the local fire department. Um, I, I went right back to it and I got, got the job and that's how I got into the fire service. Oh, what's the, what's the mix over there? Um, cause I know back East, there's a lot more volunteer departments than they're out here on the West coast. What, um, was it, was there paid professional yeah, so, right out the door or were you looking at volunteer type stuff or? No. So that was, um, paid professional and it was a very small department. They, they had volunteers on hand. Oh. Um, so kind of blend, but, like a blend. Yeah. It was a small department, three stations. That's before I went over to Charleston, and I only worked there for two years. And they sent me to, they sent me to the fire academy, and you know, I got my, um, you know, on paper training and all that stuff that, that you need. And right, all your service. From there, I did two years, but it was a very good two years in a small department, you know, because we were our stretched very thin. It was, it, it wasn't as rural then when as when I was growing up, but we had our share of shitty calls and. Um, yeah. Not a whole lot of fires at that department, but a ton of just crazy off the wall medical stuff. You know, like plane crashes. Um, we worked a uh, we had a section of highway that I write about in my book that we worked, and I worked nine fatalities in one month on that road. Mm. Um, uh, suicides, just you know, the standard run of the mill stuff. But for a small area, I mean, it, it, they certainly knew how to pack it in. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. The uh, I, I wonder. I'm kind of wondering, like, why why it was so. Uh, well, why there was so much fatality, why there was so many rough calls. I think about, when I think about rural areas and I apologize because I've never, I've worked in, you know, in a uh, very urban area my whole entire career. So my, my perspective is a little bit twisted here. I just think about wide open fields and, you know, like everything spread out, you know, the challenges to me would be like water supply issues and things like that. Not so much, um, you know, highway collisions and stuff. So it's kind of. So we had a road that was the third most violent or third most deadly road in the country back then. It was Highway 170. And it ran from Beaufort, South Carolina into Savannah, Georgia. And that road was just a very desolate two-lane road that Savannah was a party town. Hilton Head area, which was outside of Bluffton, was a party town. Mm. And Beaufort was a smaller party town. And there was a lot of military in Savannah, a lot of military in Beaufort. And so people that wanted to go out on the weekends or just whatever they had to travel this road and it was the only way and you know we would just unfortunately get a lot of a lot of drunk driving that's that shit one one incident alone on that road we had four killed in a rollover um these four mexican guys were in a mustang hatchback and uh never forget it was a white white mustang and they they just ran off the road pulled it back on flipped and threw them all out and they were all dead on impact so just stuff like that man um and and I agree with you. You you think these rural places would be quiet, but actually these rural places see some very very violent NBAs. Uh, um, yeah, it makes sense, so, right? You get on that open highway and you're like, woo! And I think yeah. people seem to forget how uh, how deadly 
car vehicles can be and how they think there's a sense of control. But, man, one little – I have personal experience with this. <laughs> I was uh, I was uh, coming – when I was on base, I was getting ready to get married, and I left in the middle of the night because I'm like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to go get married, and I got my leave papers signed, and I'm, I'm out, right? And uh, so I'm jetting across the desert in the middle of the night, and, of course, I fell asleep at the wheel. And I'm, I'm going like 90 miles an hour. And I drift drift off the drift off to the shoulder and wake up as it's you know as I hit the rumble strip and then I overcorrect just slightly and fishtail spin flip the vehicle and landed on the middle of the dotted line you know luckily luckily by the grace of God I got out of there and um, you know but out in the middle of nowhere on the I ten just trucks drive by and I sat there for forty five minutes waiting for somebody to come along. Yeah, you're a lucky dude, man. Super lucky. But I think about like that's like that. yeah, I think about how how quickly those how quickly that uh high speed cruise can turn into to a deadly uh, encounter. But uh but anyway, so so you're getting a lot of experience at this smaller department and um was this when you transitioned to Charleston? I know you spent some time in Charleston. I think it was Charleston before you went to become a law enforcement officer, right? Yeah. So, you know, I wanted, I wanted more fire experience and where we were, we just, I mean, we had some, a few fires, but I mean, there weren't even anything to write home about. Um, but when I went to Charleston, the game changed because Charleston, granted it's no Phoenix, Arizona, but it was one, it was like the second oldest city in the country. And it was, it's big and it was burning back then. We had arsonists running around for multiple, for several years straight where they couldn't catch. And it's all wood, uh, balloon frame construction housing. Yeah. And the houses, literally, you can stand between houses and touch both houses at the same time. It's very tight. Um, so when one would get going, it wasn't outside of the realm of possibility that you'd have five houses burning on the same block in one night. I mean, I've done that multiple yeah. times. Oh, wow. Um, so it was a world of difference for me coming into from where I came, where you get an eventual, you know, an occasional trailer fire or something like that. Right. Um, to, oh, shit, these are real. Um, and people trapped, and, you know, like it, it was just real. And it was, I couldn't have asked for more as a young firefighter. Cause that's, you know, that's what we want to do. We want to fight fire. We don't want to go sit in the station and just talk about shit. We want to be out doing the job that we're trained to do. hundred percent. Um, and I got all of it that I wanted the first year that I was there. I got more than, than I could have asked for. Nice. Was there a part of town that was, you know, when you look at Charleston, is there a place that's busier than others for a certain reason? I'm sorry, I, I you cut out there. Sorry, is there a part of Charleston that's busier than another? Like, I mean, demographically, is it a downtown area or like where is yeah, that? Yeah, I think, I think with any city, you know, and, and it's always changing too. So when I when I started out, the east side of Charleston, which is uh, part of the the downtown section. Mm-hmm. The east side that I worked, it was the busiest. I, were, I ran out of engine six. Now, if you talk to guys in engine eight or engine 15, they'd tell you that they were busier back then. <laughs> um, engine two and three would tell you that they're busy, but they work in the tourist district. Engine nine would tell you that they're the busiest. They worked up in the uh, industrial area, and this was all downtown. So, um, But then there was a period later uh, during my career when I came back to Charleston where the west side, uh, was busier than downtown and we were running them in the dirt. And hmm. now I think it's back to downtown running more. So I, th- I think it, it just changes. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So, so how long were you with Charleston before? Well, let me ask you this. What prompted you to, you got this great job. You're fighting fire like crazy. And what prompted you to, to leave and go to PD? Well, so, you know, I always had that 
that idea of being a police officer. Remember what I told you when I was um, coming out of the Marine Corps, I yeah. was in the back of my head already. And I was working at a gym on um, one of my off days and a police officer from North Charleston came in, which back then we all knew North Charleston was, was a very, very violent city. So that's the city that, that we share a border with. And I guess the city of Charleston, you have North Charleston, North Charleston back then was the fifth most violent city per capita. I mean, yeah. this place was out of control violent. And I mean, it still is, but it's nothing like it used to be. And this cop came in one day and he was talking to me. I was working at the gym and we just started shooting the shit. And uh, hearing his stories made me kind of want to get a peek into that world. So he invited me to come do a ride along. And I'm going to tell you, man, I went, I did a ride along. And my first ride along, I'm standing there on a homicide scene and within, within minutes of being on that ride along. And then it was just traffic stop after foot chase after that. I mean, it was just nonstop for a 10 hour shift. It didn't stop. And I got the bug. And I, I, I think the next day I put my application and I want to say it was very shortly after that. I went to my crew and I, I felt bad because I love my crew at the firehouse. I was right. like, look, I got to do this. I got to try this. And I did. And I did it for, for two years. And, and I'm, you know, if you, you read my book and it didn't work out for me. And, yeah. Well, there's fortunately, a, fortunately it didn't work out for me. Before we talk about the end of your career there, I want to, I want to talk about, there's a, um, there's something in your book. I taught you, I'm trying to remember now exactly how it went down, but you had an auto chase that turned into a foot and then off of a brick, off into off of the overpass. And I want to hear, oh, yeah. I want, tell me that story. So I have, I have cop stories for days and, but one of my favorite ones is, uh, you know, so when I went into the Academy, right, I wasn't anticipating just how crazy this job was going to be. And we went there, we went to a state academy. And when this, when the instructors walked in, we had, I can't remember, man, we had a room full of cadets from all over the state. And they asked who specifically was from North Charleston. And we all raised our hands and they told the other officers, look around. He said, these guys are going to see more in six months than you will possibly in your entire career. And I remember having my chest out. Man. I was going to say, your like, head yeah, must have just yeah. swelled oh, up. Yeah, man. <laughs> and and, and I, was ex- I was excited, man. It was something to be proud of. But, yeah. you know, I wanted to go do the job. And, yeah. Um. So literally when I hit the street, man, it was car chase after car chase after car chase. Because back then, the city, the PC culture wasn't around yet. And our chief was, hey, go get them, chief. He's like, hey, if somebody's breaking law, go get them. Right. And that's what we did. Now we didn't, I mean, we didn't do like, like piddly bullshit. Like we went after criminals and I ended up doing a lot of drug interdiction. And when you're dealing with people doing drug interdiction, getting guns and dope off the street, you deal with violent people who, yeah. who not don't, they don't really go willingly. So there was fights nonstop. There were car chases. There were foot chases. I mean, it was, yeah, I could go on for days for two years. I literally had a 20 year career in those two years. So to answer your question, one of my favorite stories was the time where I fell off of a, I fell off of a damn bridge, um, chasing a suspect in a stolen car. And we were doing triple digit speeds. Uh, we went into the next city over. Uh, we went into Charleston city limits because this time I was a North Charleston cop. So we chased him in the city of Charleston and uh, it was late at night. I was on midnight shifts and, uh, we go over this bridge and he, he spins out of control because the bridge is one of those, uh, it's, I don't know if y'all call it a viaduct where it is or an overpass, but it went up in the air and it turned a little bit to the left. Okay. Well, he lost control and his car pinballed between the two concrete barriers. Right. When he came to a stop, I jammed my uh, bumper right into his door and he started diving out of the passenger side window. Passenger's still in there. And then he got on the concrete barrier and he went to jump. 
and I dove for him head first. And when I did, I, I thought that there was another lane of traffic on the other side of that wall. Well, there was, but it was 15 feet below us. Um, so we didn't just fall over a, a concrete curb onto, you know, like what, what would that be? Like a two foot drop on the other side. Right. Right. You know? I mean, we fell a long way down. And were you thinking, were you, were you thinking anytime now, anytime now we should, <laughs> I don't think I had time to think, man. I just, it, we hit the ground and I remember my leg was almost completely numb because I landed on my radio. It shattered my radio. Oh man. And I remember fighting this guy. There was an RV that was coming our way. Like this is straight out of a Hollywood movie. You can't make this shit up. So this RV was about to run us over. It finally stopped. Um, I remember a canine officer came and helped me. We, we got this guy in custody. Then we went, found the other guy hiding in the swamp. The canine dogs ate his ass, um, half death. So, cause he was out in the swamp and then the cops weren't going out there. So they, right. they let the dogs out. Uh, the dogs had to mm. feel I do not want to be on the receiving end of a, one of those police dogs, man. Dude, I've seen a dog break his titanium teeth off in a suspect. And that's for another conversation. <laughs> Dog had titanium teeth and they broke off. Hmm. They just can't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the yeah, the bite force on those dishes. guys is freaking impressive. They call them a yeah, fur, they call them some, fur missiles for a reason. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some vicious stuff. I've seen. So when, back when I used to police, I, you know, I probably shouldn't say this because of our, our climate right now. I've seen. Um, I've seen suspects that were getting getting eaten by those dogs, and the canine handlers were a uh, little. Um, little gunshot to call the dog off. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. And just kind of like, eh, looking at their watch, like, let's go ahead and let them have lunch for a few minutes. You can't do that shit today. I mean, but I've seen some people get their ass eaten up. <laughs> so in this instant, we, we got both suspects, man. It was a stolen car. Um, this guy was a dirtbag, uh, dope dealer, um, big time dope dealer guy. And I, I hobble up to my sergeant. My sergeant was like, dude, you're in no condition to work the rest of the shift. So go home. So I went home. Yeah. Did you and, get did you get injured at all? Yeah, I mean I just busted up my leg and my hip. Just kind of um, bru- bruised but not broken kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't anything severe, but it was one of those Oof. you just you took a shot where you can barely walk and barely stand up kind of yeah. thing. Um so I, I went home and normally I got home at like eight in the morning, um, because I was on midnight shift, but this I want to say it was around two o'clock in the morning. I, I show up to my front door and um I lived in this big apartment complex. And I, I look up in our upstairs window because I lived with my girlfriend at the time and there was some candles flickering. And I was like, oh, shit, she's waiting on me, you know. <laughs> um, little guy there. Uh, when I walk in the front door, my dog is downstairs and I look at him because he always slept upstairs with us. So then I listen uh-huh. and I can hear can hear some very pleasurable sounds coming from upstairs. Mm. And I was like, what what am I about to get into, you know, and. Um, and you always hear those stories where people talk about, well, if I found my spouse, you know, somebody else, I'd kill them both. And right. I'll tell you, man, it's not like that. So I got to the door and I hear, I could hear both of them moaning in there. And I was like, please just be another woman in there. <laughs> um, and I write about that in the book. And it's just like, please, yeah. please, please. And I opened the door and it wasn't, it was nothing close to a woman. It was, it was a stud of a man dude in there. And he was behind my girl and, he was putting in some really good work and uh, I honestly felt selfish for breaking it up. <laughs> you know, it was kind of my, my little apartment I shared with her at the time. Yeah. So that was, that was my, uh, my welcome mm. from getting hurt. That's brutal. 
I'm imagining though that I mean I'm imagining that that was a good a turning point for the for good, right? Like that had to be like obviously a toxic relationship and move on. It actually wasn't toxic, man. We had a good time. It was just I think at that time I was a young cop Mm. and I was getting a lot of attention from other other people, you know, not that I was going going through with anything. And she was pushing the whole marriage thing and I kind of checked out and Mm -hmm. I pushed her away. And I, you know, obviously I pushed her away and I I just, I wasn't as uh, into the relationship as she was, I think. And so she went and sought, sought help elsewhere. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, but I look back on it and it actually was a great thing that happened to me. And that's the problem when I talk, when we talk about mental health and all this thing, all these things that, yeah, we go through these hardships in our life, but what we don't really realize is the path that that hardship is about to put you on. You don't necessarily know where you're headed. You don't even realize it's putting you on a new path, but it is. Right. And your life will be better down the road somewhere. And it's because these shitty things take place in your life to redirect you to where you need to be. And that's, that was just one of the many, many, many turning points in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that next one. So here you are, you're, you know, you're doing the police thing. It sounds like you're having a pretty successful career. You're, you know, taking out bad guys and whatnot, and you find yourself getting called to the carpet. So what? Yeah, man. Tell us that story. So, like I say, we we were running and gunning back in the day, and, and it was it's, all this is in my book, you know. And then you read it. I don't yeah. I don't hold back in the book. I, I tell the whole story from start to finish in there. Um, but just to kind of glaze over that briefly for time constraint purposes i got officer of the month one month and then like three or four months later i'm getting fired you know um and i got officer of the month for doing my job and fighting bad dudes and that's that's just what we did um but we did so much of it that it started to get questionable Mm. um at a time when um, politics were really starting to come into the forefront of policing more so uh in 2005 and it it changed very rapidly from 03 to 05 and it got very political, very quickly. And um, so policing was changing at an astronomical rate. And I, I ended up chasing these, uh, this suspect behind a, a building after a car chase and I got in a fight with him. No big deal. I, I lock him up. No big deal. We search his car. There's some crack found in there. Um, no big deal. We, but I tested the crack and it didn't even test positive for crack cocaine. It was bunk, what we call bunk. It's fake. So I just threw it out. I threw it on the ground and stomped it out. I was like, whatever. So I took the guy to jail because he had a warrant. And when I got out of the jail, like sometime later, I got called up to internal affairs uh, because there was a um, an accusation made against me saying that I asked one of the officers that was there searching a the vehicle to lie about where we found that supposed crack cocaine. And I didn't. I didn't. I never said that. I mean, what the conversation was, and it was taken out of context, was this. It was, he, he said, uh, um, Travis, I found some crack cane, crack cocaine in the back seat. Too bad we can't say it was up front because we could, we could say it was the drivers. And this is my, exactly what I said to him. I said, it doesn't matter where it was in the car. I don't care if it was under the floorboard and the trunk or the dashboard and glove box. We'll say it was wherever because it's the drivers regardless. And what I meant by that is in the state of South Carolina back then, I don't know if the laws have changed, but back then, if, Something was in the passenger compartment of the vehicle or actually in the, even in the trunk and no one claimed possession of it. It's the drivers regardless. Meaning if a passenger had crack cocaine and they left it in the car, 
and the passenger and the passenger said it's not mine it becomes the driver so that's all i meant by that well back then without going too in depth there was our police department was taking a lot of heat from a, a local newspaper article talking about police officers getting fired from their jobs and being able to walk into the, the agent, the next agency over and just get a job the same day. Right. And there was no recourse or no, um, no consequence for their actions. So that, that incident happened like literally two weeks after that article came out. And I was just, they, they, um, used, made me an example pretty much. Yeah. And they fired me and, took away my credentials, said that I asked, I, I lied, and that was conduct unbecoming. And I never did. And if you read that book, you'll understand later that that decision was overturned by the Criminal Justice Academy here in South Carolina because they it took eight years, but they, they looked at it again, investigated it thoroughly, and found that it was complete bullshit and that I was pretty much railroaded. Yeah, well, at least you got, at least you got it rectified, right? So but again, justice was served. <laughs> another turning point. And another fork in the road and another kick in the balls when you think the world's against you. It's really not. It's the world working in your favor. You just don't know it and you can't see it. And that's where we start, you know, falling into that victim mentality. Like, why is this shit happening to me? Why do, why do all these shitty things keep happening to me? It's like, because honestly, because you deserve it and you just don't know why yet. You know, it's, it's led me to where I am. Had all these things happen, including the stuff we're getting ready to talk about. Yeah. Had, a, had none of these things happened, I would I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today, right? And doing what I get to do today, right? I'd still be a police officer getting looking at doing a couple more years in retirement, scared to come out of my office right now because I'm scared to do my job because if I do, I'm going to get fired and lose my pension. That's where I'd be. Right. It's it is interesting when we look at the you know like life life is hard, man, and there's always challenges and there's pitfalls and um. You know, I hate to to always try to put a silver lining on things because when you're in the middle of a shitstorm, it is very difficult to see beyond that sometimes. And um, and so, but and so, it's good to be able to look back and go, "Hey, there's all these a hundred percent of the shitty situations I've been in in my life, I survived because here I am, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent of them. <laughs> and every one of them is necessary for you to be where you are. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of times when, when I'm doing motivational speaking, a lot of times people don't realize that where they are is actually a very good place. Yeah. They just, because they, they see so much negativity yeah. and they see all the bad that's happened before. And that's inevitably, that's the world they start to live in that victim, that victimhood and that why is me, woe is me kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly the world I lived in for a long time yeah. until I figured all that shit out. Well, so, so. Let, that's a perfect segue because so here you are standing on the carpet getting fired from this job that you've you know aspired toward and what do you what do you do i tell you what you do man you pick up the phone and you call the best job in the world you call the fire department you <laughs> you ask the chief if you can have your job back that's what you do that's what i did and chief uh chief Welcome me with open arms, man. He couldn't have been any better to me because I left the Charles Fire Department on good terms. And I told him, I said, Chief, there's just always something I, I needed to look into. And uh, when I called him that day, I got fired. He asked me how it was going. I'll never forget. And I said, not too good, Chief. I just got fired from being a cop. And he said, oh, shit, what's going on? What happened? And I told him and I, I asked him if I could have a job back. And, you know, I was very, very fortunate that he, he had an opening 
on engine 16 C shift. Normally there weren't back then there weren't any openings. You had to wait months and months and months for somebody to leave or retire, you know, and, and back then firefighters, they didn't get fired. You had to fire yourself as a firefighter. I mean, yeah, you could do anything short of murdering somebody in the fire department right? and you had a job. So if they were full, you just, you never knew how long it was going to be, but I got, I was fortunate. I'm not going to say the kid's name, but he got drunk one night on duty, wrecked his damn truck into a phone pole. And it was best that he, uh, He'd leave the job because he had some other shit going on. And that opened up a spot for me. And that's what I mean. That's that silver lining. Okay, I get fired from being a police officer today. But I'm going into a job that I actually really, really love because there's no – there's nobody looking over your shoulder in the fire department back then uh, like there was the police department. See, the police department became so political that anytime you would even do your job, you had to answer for it, even when you were right. You were always having to justify yourself. Right. And at least at the fire department, I could go back to being funny, playing little, pranks, pulling my balls out free. on people. Yeah, yeah, just having a good time. And uh, I, I was home. And uh, I was only in Engine 16 for a few shifts before they had a uh, an open, another opening on Ladder 5. And I uh, requested to go to the Ladder Company. And, man, I couldn't have been happier. I went to Ladder 5 and, and shit. I was I was ready to retire right there, do the rest of my <laughs> career right there. Yeah, that's great. So, what was your you know that is I will say this, man. It is very unusual um, to walk in and say, "Hey, I'm looking for a job," basically, and poof, you got a job. Um, in most agencies, there's a you know long testing process, and and I don't know if that's you know I'm assuming that's how it is everywhere. Um, but you know how how is it generally done in in Charleston? So now it's done the right way. There is a long process. There's this interview, that interview, this test, that test. Mm. When when you read that book, you'll see I got hired as a firefighter three different times. Okay, right. When I first started, and it was all on the spot. Yeah, I was gonna say you kind of waltzed every, in essentially. <laughs> every time. Yeah. When I went back to my hometown of Bluffton, I knew the chief. All right, so the chief welcomed me back. And gave me a job. He just said, you just have to go to the police academy. So I went, I'm a fire academy. So I went to the fire academy and I passed it. And I graduated and I came back. When I went to Charleston, there's a story in there about how all that happened. Right. Um, did, uh, a very good friend of mine who was later killed, he uh, he waltzed me up to the chief's office and he carried so much weight with the chief of Charleston. The chief gave me the job. Right. Um, on the, he, he told me I had the job, just wait for his phone call. So I had to wait until they could figure out when they were going to do the rookie class. And then the third time when I came back after the police department, I called him and had a job immediately. It is nothing like that. It was so good old boy back then. Yeah. And it was all about who you knew and yeah. the relationships you had. Now you can't No, it's nothing like that. Yeah. How do you, how do you think that that affected the culture in the organization? Um, I don't know, man. Um, I, I liked it like that. We were so tight. We were a 300 man department, which isn't big, right. but it's not small. Yeah. That's a good size. And, yeah, it's a good size. And we knew everybody. I knew every captain, every every driver, every firefighter. You knew all everybody. Yeah. And we all had good relationships for the most part. You knew who you wanted to work with, who you didn't want to work with, who you could who you could be um who you could cut up with and you knew who you, who you had to stay away from. Right. Um and now it's it's not like that anymore. It's over there it's very business like now. I've talked to some there's a few of the old guys left and it's very business like and it's very corporate. Now it's not like the fire department of old. Was that you know, a I'm, was that a direct 
uh, direct correlation to the Charleston nine. Like some, yeah, some so massive our, we changes a, after that. Man, we had a huge culture shift after that. So yeah. we, you know, when they brought, they brought all these other chiefs in, it, several chiefs have come in since then. I think they're on the third now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first, the first one, he was pretty good. Um, chief Carr, and he didn't really rock the boat, uh, but he had a, he brought another guy in that really rocked the boat and started giving a lot of the old guys a hard time. And a lot of the old guys didn't really like this guy and I'm not going to bash him. Right. Um, by saying his name, it's not hard to figure out who it was, but, right. um, old guys really didn't like it. And honestly, he ran a lot of the old guys off and guys that had time in that, that could retire. They, um, they just left yeah. and we had a massive turnover. Yeah. Uh, I stayed for two and a half years after that fire until my injuries wouldn't let me stay anymore. But, uh, it's, it, it's definitely not the same department, but you know, nothing stays the same. Everything changes over time. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about what kind of led to that change. So, or, or, or what was, you know, kind of the precursor to that and, and what the event that we're talking about, I think I, I would, I would like to think that everybody, at least everybody in the fire service knows about the Charleston nine and knows about that event. Um, but I, I, but I think your perspective on it is really, really important. And I think that of course, there's probably people listening to this podcast. who have no idea what we're talking about. So if you can share a little bit about, you know, the events of that day and kind of some of the pieces of it that, you know, you, whatever you'd like to share, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So that day, June 18th, 2007, we, um, Charles fire department, we lost nine of our own, um, in, in one, one incident at the super store fire on Savannah highway on the West side, Charleston. Um, at the time that was the largest loss of life to firefighters since nine 11. Now, let me, let me make sure that that's understood. I'm not claiming that that's the second largest loss of firefighters in the line of duty ever. That was just at the time, no, no amount of firefighters, that amount of firefighters hadn't been killed since the 9-11 event because I said that one time and I had a firefighter come at me sideways trying to educate me on firefighter fatalities and this incident and that. And I was like, dude, you're, you're, you're taking what you want from that. So that's not what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, in that event with, like I just said, with our 300 man department, we knew, we knew everybody. So the impact on us was a lot greater then I guess it would be with some of the larger departments when they lose guy, when they lose guys, a lot of times I'm pretty sure you don't know every Phoenix firefighter. Yep. Right. Is that safe? Safe assessment. 100%. Yeah. And so you could lose, you could lose a couple guys today, which would be unfortunate, but there's a high probability. You may not even know them, which doesn't make it any less impactful. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm trying to say, go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say it's, it's different. Right. It's a different type of impact. Like, like we lost, and I'm speaking from experience here. We lost a a kid, Brad Harper, and I never met the kid, but I felt, I felt a a brotherhood, a connection to him. And, and then, and I knew people who need who did know him. So there's this direct, there's these connection points, but it's not as impactful as uh, there's people in my life that I've lost that were close to me. Very different. You know, the way, the way that I carry that is very different. So, um, so yeah, and it's well, in, and I was going to say this too about the the size of the department or versus the um you know the the number of lives lost you know whether it's the f- the most firefighters or the least number of firefighters whatever the the na- the way that those folks fit into your organization changes the way that, that affects the uh, department and 
whether it's, you know, how it fits on the scale of, of, you know, severity, um, from department to department is, is immaterial to me. Right. So I don't know why people make a big deal about that stuff, but anyway, you know, people can be, um, so what I was just, what I was trying to say was that our department was big enough to, to have a, a good size department, but small enough to where we still had a personal relationship with every single person there. Yeah. And so those nine guys that were killed that night, I knew every single one of them and I didn't just know them. I knew them very well. Every single one of them. Yeah. I had worked with them. I fought fires with them. I had been on multiple calls with every single one of them. And one of them was my best friend at the time. Um, so it was extremely, extremely difficult for me uh, to, to, to lose that many friends in one clip. Um, not to mention the assignment that I had that night didn't make it any, any easier. I was, I was put on the body recovery team to go in and, dig out my dead friends and looking back i don't think organizations will do that anymore i i think now if that were to happen these days what they would do would they'd send another department in to locate and probably bag bag the, the fallen up and then the people that had the relationships could certainly come and carry them out but i would i would hope no department would send their guys in the way that we did and i'm not saying there was any fault to it because there was certainly an honor to it and if anybody's going to go in there and do it shit it needs to be us but looking back from the mental health standpoint that messed me up more than anything i would ever been through in my life and so the rest of the body recovery team the 20 guys that were on there with me that does something to you that you can't take back yeah well that so that's the Thing about this fire that was interesting from your perspective is you weren't on the event, right? You were off. And yeah, I was off duty, man. We were at a damn golf tournament. <laughs> was it was it just your day off or were you on like a shift swap or something like that? Or was it just you were just off? No, it was uh it was my day off. And we had a so the guy that got me me hired, his name was Shane Albers, but in the book I changed his name for legal reasons. Uh we were having a golf benefit for Shane. And if you can hear me walking, I'm sorry, I'm walking across the street. Um we were having a golf benefit for Shane because Shane was killed four months to the day prior to that incident and uh, in a car wreck. So we were trying to do his family a solid and raise a bunch of money yeah. um, to help, you know, his son, his son was left behind and his, his wife and we we're just trying to raise any kind of additional funds we could. And at the end of the golf tournament, uh, we started getting calls on our cell phone that the sofa superstore was on fire and on the West side. And at the time, anybody in our department knew that that fire was a death trap. We, they, we had often referred to that building as a death trap. Yeah. Just because of the, the sheer size of it and how it was laid out. And if you had ever uh, pre-planned that building, when you walk in there, it was just made. It was just nasty. So when we heard that was on fire, um, the golf tournament was over. There's 200 firemen right down the street, a couple miles down the road. So. Naturally, we all just headed over there. Right. And uh, when we got there, we we found out it was pretty severe. And uh, I, I I met one of my buddies who was on uh, Engine 11. He was the first dude pumper that day. And when I went up to him, he said that my buddy Lewis was inside missing. And that was – Lewis was who I was telling you about, who's my best friend. Yeah. And uh, then he said we had other guys missing inside too. And – at one time, I think we, 
I think they thought we had like 19 or 20 people missing inside of that building. And it was just, yeah. it was complete chaos. Yeah. Uh, and let me just interject real quick and say that it, it, anybody who's listening to this, you need to go read the after action report, um, the NIOSH report, et cetera. Cause it, there's, there's a lot of detail in the events that took place on that day. And, um, some of the, the some of the struggles that, that happened with the, um, communications and some of the struggles with water supply and things like that, that contributed to this event, um, that they don't make it any easier to, to swallow, but, um, but they add context. That's really important. So, um, yeah, it'll so, certainly, certainly put some context on things. Yeah. I mean, cause you, you, when you look at the, the grand scheme of this event, it wasn't any one little thing that made this happen. It was so many little things that added up to the big event. Yeah. You know, that yeah. made this whole thing just go to hell in a handbasket yeah. real quick. Well, and, it, and as you're talking about the, the building itself and the super, super, super sofa store, right? That's what it's called, right? Sofa superstore, but so, it's easy okay. to get confused. So I don't correct people, man. It's, right. uh, I can, I can, I get it. So, but the, that I, I'm thinking like everybody who's, who's on the fire truck is thinking, man, there's that building in their first due, right? Like everyone knows that one building that matches that description. And, um, right. it's just important. It's so important that we learn from these lessons and, and under, recognize like, Hey, there are these death traps in our first dues. It's so important to realize that and, and be mindful of that and how we approach those buildings. So, so you show up there in your golf shorts and your polo, I'm imagining. Yeah, man. So I'm in my, my little uh, golf outfit and, um, I don't even know if I had a t-shirt on at that point. We did get <laughs> golf event got pretty wild. So, yeah, um, yeah fireman golfing, I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know how it goes. And I, I tell some pretty funny stories about a golf tournament in the book, but, uh, we, uh, I sent my girlfriend, she was actually with me and I sent her my, so my firehouse was uh, two firehouses down. You had engine 11 and engine 10 ladder five, which is where my company was uh, ladder five house on Nicholson street. And uh, I sent her to my, my firehouse to get my gear that was in my locker. And before I could turn around, she was already back. So she, I don't know how she did it so fast, but she did. It seemed like I blinked an eye and she was back with my gear and, uh, I put it on and, and probably pretty charged was, up. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, I put it on and by that time the building collapsed and they had pulled everybody out. And I just remember being, I was pretty pissed off because at the time in Charleston, we didn't fight fire from the outside. We didn't even know what a defensive attack was. And I mean, I've been in fires where fire would be blowing out of every orifice, every window, every door, and we still made a push. And, Mm -hmm. and so we weren't used to being called back. And, uh, I remember yelling and screaming. And this is, I talk about this and this is kind of not something I'm proud of, but it, this is the, the tunnel vision that would, that will get people hurt on the fire ground. Mm. And I tried to make entry into this thing with no hose, no air pack, no tools, nothing, just, just my helmet and my bunker gear. And I start crawling through a window and somebody grabbed me and pulled me down. And, um, when I landed on the pavement, I realized like, Oh shit, this is real. Like we have guys inside of this building and there's, there's really no hope for them. Um, mm. So what they did is they huddled us all up, several hundred of us out there just in front of this building while our uh, tower ladders were operating overhead. And they were trying to find, um, get a, get a definite head count of, of how many people we had missing. And they boiled it down to nine while we were standing out there. And, and um, one of our deputy chiefs or battalion chiefs was walked around and started asking for volunteers to go inside and help locate our guys. And me at the time, I was a little optimistic, even though this building was in disarray. I, I still thought that, all right, well, they're in there. They're it's just trapped be somewhere. Yeah. 
yeah, we'll, we'll get them. And if anybody's going to do it, you know, I'll, I'll be, I'll certainly be able to do it. You know, I felt like I was a, a bull in the china shop at the time and I volunteered, man. And it was, um, it's one of the, I look back on it. I talk about how it was one of the worst decisions I ever made volunteering because I had no idea what I was about to go see. But two, it was the best decision I ever made because it was one of the most honorable things I could have ever done was go in there and be with my guys during their, while they, while they were there waiting to get carried home. And we carried every single one of them home. You know, I wouldn't have wanted anybody else to, to go in and find them. You know, that was our job. So I just didn't realize the impact it was going to have on me. Um, And I was a little bit naive to at the time because, you know, you see these things in emergency services, you see dead people and, you go to you go to these horrible calls, but it's not real because you don't have relationships with those people. You know, it's yeah. all like it's kind of like almost like a movie. Shit, I don't have to tell you or anybody listening. It's just it sucks unless it's kids. You know, I pulled out burn up kids from Christmas fires and shit like that, and that's never easy. But you you put it in the back of your mind and you, and you press on. So, yeah. and I will say this, this was my in the in the book. You go into a lot of of graphic detail about what you yes. saw and felt. And um, and I know it's got to be hard for you to tell that story again and again, so I don't want to press you to, to, to delve yeah, into it's, that. But. It's very, very difficult to talk about it that way. And, you know, and I, I do talk about it very graphically in the book because it, it needed to be talked about. And yep. periodically when I'm doing, um, you know, mental health speeches, I'll talk about it as well, pretty graphic. It just, it really depends on the mood at the time. But sometimes I'll, I'll kind of cover it without having to get so graphic. And then there's times where it just feels like I need to get that way, but it is hard because you have to relive it. And when you're right. sitting there looking at your best friend who is burnt beyond all recognition, I mean, seriously beyond all recognition, but you just know it's him. Um, it doesn't matter what words I use to describe. I mean, it's never going to really paint the picture when you're when you're sitting there with them in that moment it yeah. is it's it's a it's a god-awful thing well do do this for me tell me about how how are you you know is the building completely extinguished when you're doing your search you guys are in there trying to find your guys and what are the conditions yeah. that you're dealing with in a collapsed building so we still we still had heavy fire conditions because we had there was you know there was a, a major collapse on the central part of the building and then on the right side so like the delta side you still had uh partial collapses v collapses every kind of collapse they teach you right. that side of the building had that going on whereas the, the front of the building primarily was a pancake collapse um the bravo side was still intact and part of the charlie side which for civilians listening would be the left and the back side so the middle was a full collapse and then the right side of the building had various collapses creating different voids for us to crawl through and my team we were tasked with going in from that side to make entry because we had no clue where these nine guys were that we just knew they were in there somewhere right were you guys trying to follow a hose line at some point or anything like that man dude you could give you could give it up because every hose line that was in there was just burnt beyond like and it was it was so when i tell you we went in there was steel that was twisted like spaghetti everywhere. And if you were, if you were following a hose line, you followed it two feet and then it was just gone. It's pinched I off. Mean, yeah. It, yeah. So it was, there was still heavy fire presence because in these voids, the tower ladders, they couldn't, they couldn't suppress some of the fire that was exposed. Um, 
yeah, because covered. it was yeah. it, it was covered. It was sheltered. So we had to um, crawl around on our hands and knees. I had no air pack. All the air packs were used. Um, we didn't need, I don't even know if we had an air truck on scene that night until later. Uh, certainly when we were there, it wasn't there. We literally had no air pack. Um, yeah. And we were using our flash hoods. That was our air pack. And I remember gagging and choking on smoke, coughing it up. It was still very thick and black. And you would be crawling one second and the next second you'd be in open air, like, cause you came out of a void and you couldn't see a foot in front of your face at the time. And it seemed like it took all night to find the first, the first guy. And uh, when we found one, it seemed like it picked up a little bit more rapidly after that. We would, we would start locating them one by one. My team, we located four, including my best friend um, and the other teams, they were operating and they would, You'd hear them, hey, we got a guy, we got a guy. And now eventually we would all get together once we located them, identified them as best we could. And all those details are in the book as well. Um, not going to go into it here. Um, but we'd, we'd, we'd get them identified. And the, re- the reason we needed to identify them. You got you got an intruder over there. Oh, can you hear my dog going off? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, it's, I don't know what the heck's going on. The the reason we would um we tried to identify them best we could in place is because the coroner wanted to come in afterwards and put a GPS where their bodies lay. Right. And uh, right. Yeah, kind so of preserve evidence, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty much what that was, and we were able to we were able to successfully identify every single one of those guys um, through various ways i mean it wasn't it was not easy by any means but it was uh we were able to do it because some of their helmets were completely burned off like and you so the shield that they would have had on there it it just didn't even exist anymore i mean so there were we had to be very delicate about how we did things and i I talk about how we identified them in my book Uh, and it's surreal because when you're sitting there and you're looking at what you what we had to look at and then when you're you really realize like this is this is who you think it is. Yeah. I mean, man, it's 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 brutal, man. I mean, because they don't even they didn't even look like them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's just gut wrenching. So anyway, we worked all through the night to to locate them, and once we had them located, you know, we put them in body bags, and that wasn't an easy task because their bodies were contorted and burned and positions that made it very difficult to get them into these body bags. And uh, so we had to be delicate with how we handled that. And then we, we draped them all in American flags and their body bags and we carried them out that night. And then uh, from there, that's where my downward spiral really, really started after that, yeah. that incident. And I didn't even see it coming, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we all have this sense of like, Hey, I'm, I'm a big, tough guy. I got this and, and, you know, I'm just going to consume it and put it away. Did, did the department do any kind of, um, you know, any kind of after action, um, CISD or anything like that? Uh, so no, not a thing, man. Yeah. So we weren't, uh, we weren't prepared for that back then and we yeah. didn't have those teams in place. Right. Um, I don't even think we didn't even have a team like that. Um, so the best thing that they did they had some Worcester guys when they lost their six guys, and then they had some FDNY guys come down. Just come around, sit around our kitchen tables with us and, right. and kind of talk to us. And we opened up to them a little bit because this is all still very new. 
Right. Um, so we talked to them a little bit because you can, I guess you can understand and respect that those guys went through the same thing. You, you share something in common versus me trying to talk to, um, Joe Blow, the therapist. Right. right. So yep, for they sure. also really quickly realized, Hey, we're about to have a big, big problem here and we need to figure out this therapy thing. So they, they developed the low country firefighter support team. Low country refers to, um, this portion of South Carolina because mm. we're below sea level. Um, so they developed that. Now they actually cover the whole state and they help firemen everywhere in our state, but in, in first responders. But we were very apprehensive to talk to them, especially me, because I was that big, I was the alpha male um, of alpha males, man, right? So I had that mentality of if you talk to somebody, you're a pussy. Um, we just, we just kind of have to deal with it on our own. And I hate admitting that because. I think that I directly led to further injury, psychological injury of some of my guys, because, you know, I, I talked so badly about getting help that I probably steered them away from getting help that they probably desperately needed. Yeah. And it took me, um, it took me sitting in my room sometime later with a gun in my mouth, pulling the trigger, uh, with, with, with a, with a round in the chamber to realize, Hey, maybe I should go see somebody and that's what it took for me. But it, like I say, it wasn't that, that incident looking back, it wasn't just that incident. It was a lifetime of incidents. And that was just the cherry on top. It was this, I mean, we didn't talk about childhood trauma that I went through. Right. Uh, a lot of the other traumas uh, as a teenager that I went through, we didn't, we didn't discuss any of that because um, we would be here all damn day. Um, <laughs> Well, so we got to leave but something for people to read in the book, right? So, right, yeah, I guess so. But it's it's the the, um, the culmination, right, of a lifetime of the things that we see and go through and experience. It's the events that you don't think there's anything to it. Years later, if you hit that breaking point, that tipping point, something will come back to you, and it's going to mess you up. Right, and that's what it did with me. This made all that stuff come back, to me. And, yeah. it, and it sent me down this um, rabbit hole of depression, survivor's guilt, suicide, anxiety, all that stuff that we didn't have to help. I, I had no idea how to deal with any of this. I just had to deal with it all on my own. Right. And that's why I've become such an advocate for this, speaking out against it and, and trying to show guys and girls like, hey, look, you are not indestructible. You're very destructible and you're self-destructible and you're going to self-destruct if you don't start taking care of your mental health now. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, and it's it, it. We are seeing a change in the fire service. Um, there's more peer peer to peer type programs available. There's more um, available therapy with folks that are, you know, fire service and and you know public safety centric. Um, so they, that are un, more understanding of the the nature of the insult, I guess. And um, so it's it's good. There's a lot more available therapy, and that you know, and I'm okay. I'm going to just admit this right now. I have never been to therapy. And the more I talk about it with folks, the more I think, you know what? I probably should just go. Even if it's You'd just be surprised. Yeah, even if it's just prophylactic, right? Like I'm like, oh no, I think I'm okay. But you know what? At the end of the day, um, there's a lot I've I've seen a lot of stuff. And maybe I need to just peel back some of the layers a little bit. See, I thought I was okay, and that was the problem. Right. And at some point it just became 
all the so it didn't happen overnight it wasn't in the snap of a finger like all of a sudden i messed up right it was little by little by little and the little things led to more little things that led to more little things and before you knew it it was a big thing yeah and it was too late for me so you never know by going and getting help right now you might be able to find out a few of the little things that you're doing that you didn't even realize right yeah exactly so how did that so you know how did that go for you with the the fire department i know you ran into you know, it started getting hard for you. Yeah, it got, it got extremely hard for me, man, because I was, um, I was too busy and too concerned with being a tough guy and trying to shoulder all of this on my own that I was just hurting myself more every day. And, uh, I, I wasn't strong enough to carry the burden. I wasn't strong enough to, um, to beat this mentally, but I pretended because I, I was too afraid to show vulnerability. And what I considered weakness because the culture I grew up in, that was considered a weakness if you talked about feelings. Right. Um, so it led to the demise of my firefighting career, my emergency services career. It led to me getting physically violent at, at the uh, fire stations on more than one occasion, actually many occasions. And it finally just caught up to me when I was fist to cuff with my entire firehouse of you know, nine, ten people in there. Um, it, it just caught up to me. And there was no more sweeping it under the rug because the law enforcement got involved. And that was the end of my career. Um, had I gotten the help that I needed and that I knew that I needed in time, I, I got help. I eventually sought help, but it wasn't in time. It wasn't enough because um, I was so broken that it was going to take a long, long time for repair. What I needed was decompression. I needed to be able to take a leave of absence from the fire department for a while and decompress and go get help. But I wasn't able to do that. I was shift after shift after shift after shift after shift. And every time I came back, it was just getting worse and worse and worse. Right. And, and it was my demise. And for the longest time, for years after that, I was angry as shit, man. I was so mad that this job that I wanted to retire and be, I, I just made the engineers um, promotional exam literally the, the week before that I was getting promoted to engineer. So I was on my way to captain. Uh, a couple more years later, I'd have been a captain in Charleston Fire Department. And, um, you know, and that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted right. to be a captain in this department and never wanted to be a battalion chief because I didn't want a white helmet. <laughs> you know, I wanted to be. White helmets be, are stupid. <laughs> yeah, man. I wanted to be with the dudes. And uh, that was my concern. I, I knew when I left that police department, I got back on the fire department, I was like, this is where I need to be, but it didn't yeah. work out for me. Yeah. And well, this, so we again, talked. Yeah, I was going to say, we've talked about transitions, right? And like how these these bad events peel back uh, different events that or lead to different pathways. Right. Yeah. I was completely redirected and I, I just didn't realize it at the time that my life was meant for something bigger than the fire department. Yeah. You know, I was yeah. uh, not calling what I do now more important, but it was my, what I do now is my calling and this could all change too. It's my calling for right now in, yeah. in five, 10 years, my calling may be something completely different. But I'm following the path that the the uh, universe is putting me. Yeah. Well, I uh, speaking of your new path, um, I got on YouTube and listened to a couple of your sets, and um, freaking hilarious, bro. So I'll tell everybody, you're a comedian, a stand-up comedian now, and I'm sure that's one of many things you do. I know you publicly speak and that kind of stuff, which now during our COVID crisis is probably uh, more of a struggle than you ever imagined. Yeah. But, so. so so how has the how has the comedy obviously 
you know, you talked about being, a, you know, I'm not sure if I picked this up in the book or if we just talked about this, but you were a bit of a class clown, right? Growing up. And so you well, had I wasn't this... a bit of a class clown. <laughs> I was be... a class clown. I have the awards <laughs> to prove it, man. So you have this, this, this funny bone in you, obviously, and this sense of humor. How has that been? Um, and, you know, you parlay it into a career, which has got to be its own challenges, like learning how to go down that path. And you talk about that in the book at length, which is fantastic. But how how has that been a, how been therapeutic for you? Comedy is, has saved my life, right? So they say their laughter is the best medicine. With me, it really is true. Um, I never set out to become a stand-up comedian, a professional one at that. Um, in 2007, right after the fire, I I needed something, right? I started becoming very dead inside, and I, I, I desperately wanted something to make me feel whole, and I started flirting with stand-up comedy. I don't. Uh, I, I was watching TV one night and I saw uh, Gotham Comedy Live on Comedy Central, and I said, "Man, I'm, I'm I know I can do what these guys are doing. We're just stand-up comedians making people laugh." And I'll go. I, I made a promise to myself on my couch that night. I said, "Someday I'm going to be on that show." And it was eight years later. I seven, eight, nine, ten, nine, twelve. Nine, yeah, eight years later, I got on that. I got on that t- TV show. Um, I started doing stand-up in er, very early 2008. Um, yeah, and in 2015, I was on that. Made my first live comedy television appearance, and uh, I'm excited. I'm actually doing another one. I've, I've been on, made multiple television appearances, but I got a, another one coming up here shortly. Uh, next weekend in Provo, Utah, we're shooting my comedy special, actually, which cool. is kind of kind of cool. So I never, I never thought in a million years that when I started stand-up comedy, I would have went on to do the things that I did, right? I lost my career as a firefighter. I began doing comedy and, and it was fun and it just turned into this rocket ship of adrenaline for me. Uh, and it was something positive because it gave me something tangible. And uh, yeah. it took me overseas for the troops. I mean, it's taken me all over this country and performing with, you know, some, some of the biggest A-list celebrities out there uh, down to, you know, Nick Nobody's, you know, performing in bars and honky tonks and the finest comedy clubs and theaters. So I've gotten a taste at all. And, and it was, it was overwhelming and it, and it, and it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. And it, and it put my life back on track. Um, but then in 2016, I quit it all, you know, I had a family now and I was, I have two daughters and I'm married at this point. And I'm traveling 40 something weeks a year. I'm never home and it's ruining my home life. It's tearing our home life to shreds. And like, mm. like any father would do, our job is to provide and protect our family. And I felt like I was providing, but I wasn't protecting them because I wasn't there for my girls. I, I didn't, I wasn't, they needed their daddy. And I was in Japan at the time. I was watching them on a, um, Skype on or FaceTime. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember in that moment thinking, this is bullshit, man. I, I just don't want to be that kind of father. So when I got home, I, I finished up my tour and, and I quit comedy. And it was actually my best two years was 2015 and 2016. And uh, I had major, major things in the works and I just quit. I pulled the plug on all of it. And I walked away from it. And uh, I started flipping houses here in Charleston and I started doing very well financially with flipping houses. But remember what I said, like you, well, I don't know if I said this earlier, but I feel like every person on this earth has a purpose. We're not just put here to just exist. And when I was flipping houses, I was making a ton of money, but I was just existing. There was nothing that felt good about it. Mm. And it was, I would, every day I came home, I had 
I had money, but I was empty and I was as empty as a man can be. And I had all these things from the past that would haunt me. And mentally, I just wasn't in a good place anymore. And that led me to want to kill myself again because I just felt like I wasn't living the best life that I, I could live. And I was not honoring my brothers who died in the line of duty. And I wasn't doing them any justice because I felt like my path led me to be to do comedy. And I just I just turned my back on it. And. Uh, so. That put me in the woods with a gun and gun in hand, and there was an uh, incident that that happened out in the woods. <laughs> it's all these different things, man, that um, made me realize, like, hey, my run's not over, and I need to get back to doing what I love. And so, I made my mind up that day that I was going back to comedy. And when I did, that turned into um, it morphed into speaking again and and telling my story, and I comedy has now become kind of a backseat to speaking because now the way that I speak about mental health so candidly and very openly, there's not a lot of people doing it that way where I'm 100% vulnerable. You know, I'm at your disposal and learn from my mistakes, learn from my, my behavior that maybe you can see yourself or see one of your coworkers displaying some of the behavioral traits that I displayed. And we can catch this in time before somebody hurts himself or worse. Yeah. Um, and this has turned into a monster, man. And I'm, I'm talking, I'm speaking to colleges now. I'm speaking to, um, you know, I spoke to the FBI this year and speak, I spoke at the uh, Fraternal Order of Police, the national level. Um, next, uh, next weekend, I'm out of town I'm speaking to the, one of the largest sheriff's offices in the country, uh, for a two day event in Jacksonville, Florida, Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. Um, so it's very humbling to be able to, I don't want to say use my story. But it is, it, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm using it as a resource to show and help other people right. that this is what will happen. This is how depression will mask itself. And this is how we will inevitably end up becoming another statistic if we're not aware of the signs and symptoms of this shit. And that's why I wrote that book, man. I wrote that book to be honest with myself. I didn't intend for it to become what it, what it actually became. I wrote it to honestly just be honest with myself and to kind of get a better understanding of why I'm here. And when I put that thing out there, it caught fire and it, it's, it's, um, resonating with so many of, of our first responders in military because they are seeing in that book through these, um, my vulnerability. Right. Yeah. That, hey, they too are seeing themselves in my situation because look, I'm not the only one. There's plenty of us out there that are messed up, but it takes hearing it and seeing it sometimes to really recognize it in ourselves. And that's why that book is doing, doing so well right now. And I, I couldn't be more proud of it because now I have two resources to, to literally hand somebody. I have my story when I speak and then I have this book and it's not like this book is a magic pill, but I feel like, it's going to be the most accurate story of PTSD that you can find. That's not written by a medical professional. That's going to confuse you. You know, this is written by a first responder in our language, shit that we can understand and, and, uh, really, um, connect with. Yeah. I think that's important for, for people to, to be, to see other people's story and then realize that, Hey, it's okay to, 
to let my guard down a little bit. You use the you use the word vulnerable a while back, and I think that's a really that word is really apropos and, and a really important word to use because we um, we protect ourselves. And what's funny to me is that in the firehouse, these are these are people we do life and death activities with, and if I'm going to be willing to uh, you know share my life with somebody in that kind of way and have trust and faith in them, then I need to be honest with myself and, and with them as well. Well, I think the hardest thing in in this life to me, the hardest thing I'd ever done was become 100% completely honest with myself. And when I did that, that's when everything changed for me. And it happened out there in those woods. Mm-hmm. And it's, it literally was like flipping a switch and it's, you know, I don't need a pill to make me feel better. I don't need behavioral therapy to make me feel better. What you need is a 100% dose of honesty with yourself. And I became, I played the victim card for so long and I felt so sorry for myself for so long that I inevitably, I believed it and I, I didn't mean to, it was just all these shitty things just kept piling up. So after a while, you, you just think, all right, I'm just meant to be dog shit and I, and, and nothing's ever going to be good for me. And you will subconsciously start like sabotaging things around you when things are going good. You're not, you don't know how to handle that. So you sabotage it because you're only used to bad things. And that was what I was doing. And when I decided to say, look, I, I, I talk about ownership and acceptance a lot. You have to own and accept everything in your life. You are exactly where you are because of every decision you've ever made in life, right? And every situation has put you where you are. And there's nothing you can do to change that. The only thing you can do is make the best of it. And it sounds it sounds really like Hollywood and all of that, but it, it is so true. So with me, it was once I owned the fact that all these horrible things happened and then I accepted there's nothing I can do to change it. There's nothing, there's not one thing I can do to change any of that. So why sit here and dwell on it? The best thing I can do is take care of me by being the best me that I can be. And there's going to be more bad shit coming down the line for all of us. You know, that's, we're not immune to that. I'm sure my life has some, some roller coasters lying ahead and I'll just have to face those when, when that time comes. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I think it's, it's, it's important that we floss our brains, right. And, and take care of ourselves. And we get so busy taking care of, you know, people go to the gym and they lift weights and they, they get on the treadmill and they run and all in the, all for the, the purpose of getting healthy. And we have to set aside some time to keep our brains healthy too. keep our heart. Sounds like you read my book. (laughs) (laughs) I might have. Sounds like a page page right out of the old book. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, we pride ourselves in, uh, you know, being in shape when we're young and, and, and on these jobs, I look at my muscles, I'm fit, I'm big, I'm strong. And it's like the biggest tool in our arsenal, we neglect it, our brain. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and if I had to go back and do it all over again, I'd be a complete different, different first responder, different leader. You know, I wouldn't do a lot of the things that I did. I'd take more time to take care of my guys' mental health. Yeah. Um, yeah. Than anything. Well, know? it's funny. I was going to, I was going to ask you, you know, what's, what's one thing you would change about your journey? I would change the way that I, I thought I was Superman and I thought I was this big, tough human being when I'm actually no different than anybody else on this earth. 
and it was all a facade. It was all this thing I made up in my head that, you know, I'm superhuman and we're not. And I should have started getting help a long time before because what I, every, like I say though, everything that's happened to me happened to me for a reason. I'm here, I'm doing something different in life. So I wouldn't change the way my life has played out, but looking back, I could have certainly changed a lot of the struggles that I went through by taking care of my mental capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, man. Well, Hey, I, I really appreciate you, Travis, taking the time and, and taking the time to sit down and write this book and share your story and, um, and put your message out there. Um, it is, I think we all, all of us look at our lives and think, man, if, if this shit storm comes, how am I going to handle it? And, uh, I think it's important that we look at those around us who have been through the storm and say, okay, let's see what they did. What tools did they bring to the table and how can I better prepare myself for when this inevitable thing happens in my life? Whatever it might be, you know, you just never know what that's going to look like. You know, in my own personal life, my, my brother died and then a week later my dad died and it was freaking like, who could have planned that? I had no idea. And I had no idea how I was going to respond to it. So it's, it's important that we listen and, and look at what other people are saying and the stories that people are sharing and make sure that we are preparing ourselves for the storm because it's, it's definitely coming, but Hey, I wanted to. I wanted yeah, to, that that rainy day is definitely coming, man. So you yeah. better have a, a good umbrella. You better be prepared. Right. Yeah, you gotta you gotta get yourself tooled up, man. Hey, I gotta ask you one one off the wall question. Please. What's your best one liner? Oh. So. You want the Christian version, or do you want? The, <laughs> yeah, let's get the PG version. You want the PG version? I don't have a PG version. <laughs> All right, give me what you got. I'll beep it. <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite ones is if you can take a, you can take a joke. <laughs> right on brother. Hey, where, I don't care who you are, man. That's good stuff, dude. <laughs> where can, uh, where can people find you if they're to, to find your book and, and to find, follow you on social media, et cetera. Yeah. So just go to my website, um, Travis dot com, And that tells you everything about kind of my tour, uh, dates and everything. Um, we did get impacted pretty heavily by COVID this year, but I was still fortunate to be able to still do a lot of different work. Um, Instagram is the one I'm really trying to build up. So if you want to follow me, you can certainly follow me on Facebook, but, uh, I I'd ask everybody to please go to Instagram and give a follow because I can't do what I do without, without the audience and without the, uh, the followers. Um, I don't, I say, I'm just kind of the face of what I do, but it's everybody else's the gasoline that powers the engine, you know? Um, so without them, I, I certainly cannot do what I do. So go to, uh, Instagram, follow me there. The book is on Amazon. If you want, it's, it's closing in on um, several hundred reviews. And that's, that's actually really big because, uh, it's a self-published book. And I had publishing companies ask me to publish, uh, but I, I declined because I did not want suits to get involved. I didn't want them to change the authenticity of the voice of this book, which is my voice. Um, so for a self-published author to get the support that I've gotten, man, I'm beyond blessed. And I just can't thank people enough. So this, uh, if you think that you may know somebody that could benefit from this, go on there and, and scoop it up. Um, Amazon will have it to you within a couple of days. And I appreciate your support. Right on. Hey, and, uh, and you said something about, about being live in Provo coming up. 
Yeah, um, I'm. I don't know how they're doing tickets. I think they're they've already sold the uh, sold venue out, so I don't even think there's tickets available for that. But I'm just I'll be in Provo, Utah, doing um, shooting a comedy special. Um, oh, so right now, yeah, that's next next weekend actually. So I kind of got to get ready for that. Yeah. All right, brother. Well, I'll let you go and get ready. Hey, man. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Hey, that's all we got for today. Special thanks to Travis for taking time out of his day to sit and share with us uh, his story and his journey. Uh, go on out and get a copy of his book. It's a, it's a story that is very informative and will you will find helpful in your life, I'm certain. If you're enjoying the podcast, uh, I hope that you go and subscribe on whatever platform you like. Please reach out and uh, with feedback, email, hit me up on Instagram, what have you. Your feedback will help us make this a better podcast, uh, more informative and whatnot. Now, take the lessons learned, imbue them into your life and go on out there and get some.